Thank you very much, David and Val. So, chapter 5 of Daniel, and we're fast-forward a little bit in history. We're up to about the year 539 BC now. And you'll see from the first two words of that reading that there's a new ruler in town. Babylon is under new management, King Belshazzar. We've had King Neb, King Nebuchadnezzar, for the first four chapters of Daniel, and now Nabonidus is the king, and his son, Belshazzar, is kind of the co-regent with him. For a long time, historians actually said, Belshazzar, there's no record of him whatsoever in the historical record. The Bible must be wrong. We can only read about Nabonidus. Nabonidus was the successor to Nebuchadnezzar, not Belshazzar. And then in 1854, there was a British diplomat who was posted as consul to one of the little governorates um, of the Ottoman Empire in Basra. And he knew that a couple of years earlier, uh, somebody had discovered the city of Ur, the ancient city of Ur, where Abraham was from. And he thought, I'd love to go and use my weekends and spare times to go and excavate in Ur, which is what he did. And a couple of years later, after digging around, he found a number of cylinders Uh, which was kind of uh, the way that the Babylonians wrote official records on clay cylinders. And he found some some of these cylinders that were written by Nabonidus that referred to his first son, Belshazzar, who ruled the kingdom with him. It's one of those wonderful little moments in history of where all of the professionals, all the experts have thought, oh yes, this is ridiculous. The Bible is obviously wrong. There's no record whatsoever in actual history of someone called Belshazzar. It's made up. But actually, then they find out, under the ground, several large cylinders written by the king himself from the horse's mouth that he had a son called Belshazzar who ruled with him. Um, Game, set, and match on this score to God once again. A very salutary lesson to beware of historians. And I say that as a trained historian myself, that sometimes they're wrong and sometimes they're using um, incomplete formulations of the facts to come up with their version of events. So wear history a little bit lightly, or people's interpretations thereof. Anyway, so King Belshazzar, he is the ruler. He was definitely around, uh, ruling in Babylon while his dad, Nabonidus, was down in Arabia, uh, calming the natives who were probably quite restive under his empire. And he gave a, gave a great banquet. We read in verse 1, a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles, which is an awful lot of people. Uh, if you consider all of these nobles would have had their own retinue, their own flunkies, their own followers. Uh, obviously, they've all got wives and concubines there with them, as we read later in the account. And, of course, all the servants to serve a thousand nobles at a great feast. There's an awful lot of people. It must be a huge room that Belshazzar was using. Uh, the scale of that event isn't really captured in the famous, the really famous painting called Belshazzar's Feast by Rembrandt, which just has Belshazzar kind of looking behind him, some writing on the wall. Um, that sort of, it was a kind of a very small scale depiction. Um, it's captured a bit better by other artists like John Martin, for example, who depicts an absolutely cavernous uh, room Uh, where Belshazzar was having a feast. So think massive-scale events, big state occasion in Babylon, the capital capital city of the greatest empire on earth at the time. So there must have been an awful lot of food there. A side note, Billy Graham's dog, well, we had one of of his dogs was named Belshazzar, actually, because the dog ate so much food. And uh, whenever they had to feed this dog, uh, 
the Grahams thought, oh, it's like Belshazzar's feast having to feed this uh, animal. Anyway, uh, so it's a nice, a nice big party, but the nice party goes sour, because in verse 2, what does Belshazzar do? He thinks, I'm going to uh, get some extra drinking vessels from my treasury. Let's dig out those ones that we found in Jerusalem, in the temple of the Jews, and use those to show just how pathetic their God is, because we can just drink freely from his drinking vessels at our feasts. So it's a sacrilegious act. It's not just any old drinking vessels. It's vessels that would have been used in the temple service in Jerusalem that would have been brought over by Nebuchadnezzar when he uh, destroyed the temple and uh, brought the remains um, of the treasures over to Babylon. And it's worse because it's not just uh, a few people reverently drinking from these vessels at the feast, but everybody there has a swig, don't they? The king, his nobles, his wives, and his concubines, that all of them might drink from them. He dug them out. Anybody at all can have a drink at the expense of the God of Israel. And it's worse again, because in verse 4, as they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron, of wood and stone. Worse than the idolatry simply of abusing the vessels used for God's service in the temple, they're actively, as they're doing so, praising false gods praising idols. I wonder how Belshazzar was feeling at this moment, surrounded by thousands of his retainers and servants in his splendor, giving a great feast, freely using and abusing whatever he wanted, whatever materials came to hand. He must have been pretty, pretty smug about himself, like he was in charge, that he was unchallengeable. I can do what I want, he probably thought, I can go and smash whatever people's temples I want to and use their sacred vessels in whatever way I want, living my way and making up whatever gods I want to to serve my own purposes. But that didn't last for very long because verse 5, suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. At the 9.30 service earlier, I introduced uh, the children and their parents there to one of my special crystal glasses and I invited them to consider what it would be like if they had a little party with their parents crystal glasses at home when they were out and then suddenly as they were drinking there with their friends and mocking their parents in the living room floor the parents suddenly arrived back home and switched the lights on and said what's going on in here oh it's obviously a much much larger scale what's going on in here that happens in Babylon. Belshazzar is woken up abruptly from his smugness by God walking into the room, switching the lights on, and saying, what are you doing? And what's the effect on Belshazzar? Well, verse 6, his face turned pale, as you might expect, and he was so frightened, his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. A comical picture of the king who, a moment ago, was astride the world, the successor to the greatest empire of the day, with dozens of nations under him, hundreds of nobles attending his court, giving a great feast, reduced in an instant by the arrival of the true God at the banquet, saying, what are you doing? He doesn't fully understand the words that are written on the wall, but he does have an adequate sense of what they are, of what they represent, of who wrote them. 
And so he's terrified. And what does he do? Well, verse 7, he invites in the enchanters, the astrologers, and the diviners. Well, we know how much use these people are. We remember back in chapter 2, when King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream and he wanted it to be interpreted and people to tell him what the dream was. These are exactly the same people. This is the same group of court magicians who failed abysmally in that task. They couldn't tell him what was in his head. They couldn't tell anything truly supernatural to the king. They were just making it up. But Belshazzar has reverted to the status quo ante in Babylon, and so he's relying on these people to help him out. And he offers an expansive reward to those who can. To those who can interpret it, he offers them to be the third highest ruler in the kingdom. And of course, the bit of history I mentioned earlier about Nabonidus being the king and Belshazzar being his co-regent therefore makes sense, doesn't it, of this verse about the third highest in the kingdom. He can't make somebody the second highest after himself because he himself is the second highest after his father who's still alive and out and about in Arabia. So I will make whoever interprets this the third highest. It's an expansive order. It's like saying to somebody, I'll make you Chancellor of the Exchequer after the Queen and the Prime Minister. Um, I'll move you straight into number 11 Downing Street if you can read these words on the wall for me, which is a bit of a desperate offer to offer that to anybody, irrespective of their political or financial economic experience. We'll move Rishi Sunak out of his job and we'll move you straight in there and give you all the power to do whatever you want to if you can interpret these words which perhaps is the sort of offer you might expect Boris Johnson to give, I don't know. He might well give a banquet on this scale. Um, let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say he's probably a better, better chap than that. Anyway, then all the wise men come in and they have a go at this, but they all completely fail. They fail to give the interpretation. And so he's even more terrified, verse 9. I wonder what's worse than your knees knocking and looking pale. Well, it must have got pretty bad when Belshazzar worked out that not only could he not work out what this was saying, but none of the wise men could tell him. But somebody has a bright idea. The queen walks in. This is the, the, the Carrie figure. And she comes in and says, oh, hang on, do you remember that there's somebody here in the court who actually can interpret this sort of thing? You remember your uh, grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, had this chap called Daniel who came from the exiles in Babylon and he was able to interpret dreams. Great effectiveness. So call for Daniel, she says. And so Daniel gets wheeled in, quite old now. When we first met him in chapter 1, it was about the year 605 BC. That was the, recorded as the third year of Jehoiakim of Judah. So we're able to date that to about 605 when Daniel was brought to Babylon. Presumably as quite a young uh, boy, maybe 10 or 12 years old, to be trained up in the Babylonian civil service. So we're now 65 odd years later, he'll be in his mid to late 70s, which is obviously a good old age at that time in the ancient world to get to, but uh, believable given he would have been on decent court rations and well looked after by court physicians all his life. But he's wheeled in and he is asked to interpret what is on the wall. And the expansive offer of King Bell is repeated. I will make you the third in the kingdom, which Daniel probably thinks to himself, I've been there, I've done that, I've got the t-shirt, because he's already done that job for a very long time for Nebuchadnezzar. And so he says in verse 17, you may keep your gifts for yourself, 
and give your rewards to somebody else. So he's not beguiled by this outward show that Belshazzar makes of expansive, lavish gift. But he gives then a longer answer, probably, than Belshazzar was expecting. Maybe he was hoping these four words to have quite a simple, straightforward message for him, something he could easily deal with. But Daniel doesn't let him off the hook that easily. He starts giving him instead a history lesson. He gives him a bit of a preface to what the interpretation of these words is going to be. He's got the attention of the court. He might as well give them a history lesson. Your Majesty, King Nebuchadnezzar, do you remember him? Do you remember your ancestor, Nebuchadnezzar, and what he got up to? He had greatness and glory and splendor. Do you remember, Belshazzar, he says to him, you're not the first person in this position. You're not the first person to stand astride the world and to command people and to command nations. Get some perspective, he says to him. It's so easy to live in the moment. And as we've seen, I'm sure Belshazzar was living slightly in the moment at this feast in his moment of glory uh, as he was drinking from sacred vessels with all of his attendants around him. Uh, enjoying the moment and forgetting some perspective. But he needed that perspective because Nebuchadnezzar was a king through whom so many lessons were taught to Babylon. And he reminds uh, King Bel of the lesson that we actually saw in chapter 4, the public humiliation of Nebuchadnezzar on a grand scale when he was reduced to having the mind of an animal, verse 21. It's like a Babylonian version of Celebrity Big Brother. If you think it's pretty bad to see celebrities uh, thrown onto that and doing all sorts of silly things, how much worse when the king, the king of kings, the emperor of the Babylonian empire is reduced to having the mind of an animal? Nobody would forget that. That's a public humiliation on a grand scale that would be remembered for decades and generations to come. So the fact that Belshazzar needs reminding of this is extremely uh, poor on his part. But Daniel reminds him of what happens. And he reminds him of the lesson that King Neb was reduced until the end of verse 21. He acknowledged that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms. Not him, not Nebuchadnezzar, but the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms. And of course, by implication, Belshazzar also He is not the Most High, not him, but the Most High God is sovereign over all kingdoms. Perhaps uh, we could have just read out chapter 5 as our sermon on chapter 4 last week. That would certainly have saved uh, Simon a bit of prep time for the sermon, because Daniel's obviously doing a great job of it here in preaching the lesson of chapter 4 here in chapter 5. And he applies it to Belshazzar in verse 22. But you, Belshazzar, his son, have not humbled yourself. Son there, of course, meaning descendants. Uh, We know from elsewhere in the Bible, the Jews, for example, thought themselves as sons of Abraham. So it's not implying uh, direct uh, single generation descent. We know that Nabonidus came in the middle. But you, Belshazzar, his descendant, his son, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all of this. Doubtless, uh, when he was younger, Belshazzar would have been around the courts uh, of Nebuchadnezzar. He would have known what happens. He would have understood the lesson. But he's deliberately pushed it to one side. 
And here we see the contrast between Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar. Nebuchadnezzar's response to being humbled was that great confession at the end of chapter 4, the confession that the Lord God is most high, and he rules the nations, and he raises up and deposes kings at his will. He repented. But Belshazzar, although he knew what had happened, he knew the lesson, he refused to. He ignored God. So Daniel lays out the charge of what Belshazzar has now done in his ignoring of God. You had the goblets from his temple, verse 23, brought to you, you and your nobles, your wives and your concubines, and you drank from them, and you praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze and iron, of wood and stone. As in you worshipped everybody except the God who actually matters, the one God who actually holds in his hands your life. You did not honour him, even though you honoured every other conceivable God under the sun. And so then he gets the interpretation of these words on the wall, many, many, tekel parson. Inscriptions written as all of this section of Danielas in Aramaic, which, like Hebrew, is a language where the consonants are written without the vowels. And you add in the vowels to get the word you want as you read it out. And the words, many, many, tekel parson, if you, add the, if you add the vowels in in a certain way, you actually get some weights in Babylonian. Uh, so mina, which is about 500 grams, mina, shekel, about 10 grams, and half a shekel, 5 grams. A series of weights. Or you can add the, ver- the, uh, uh, the word letters in in a different way and get some verbs. Numbered, numbered, weighed, and divided which is, as Daniel says, Mene, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you've been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Maybe he repeats that first one, Mene, Meno, Mene, Mene, to indicate just how numbered he is. It's like if somebody says to you, how quickly do you want me to come? You say, quickly, quickly, as in really quickly. So Mene, Mene, your days are really numbered, numbered, numbered. That's how soon your reign is going to end. Why are they numbered? Well, it's because you've been weighed and found wanting. Your heart has been assessed by God. And it's evident to all in the actions that have flowed out of that heart in bringing the vessels of the temple up from your treasury, bringing those particular vessels. I'm sure he had many vessels in his treasury. When Alexander the Great conquered um, the uh, Persia a few centuries later, he found... Uh, thousands of tons of silver in the treasuries of this city. There was no shortage of beautiful vessels to drink from in Babylon. But Belshazzar chose in particular the vessels from the temple in Jerusalem. And that indicated about his heart that it was utterly opposed and rebellious towards God. You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And so Perez, your kingdom, is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Perez there, given apart from Parzin, that's the the plural of Parzin, and perhaps Daniel gave the plural there because Perez sounds a bit like Persia, and the kingdom was given to the Medes and the Persians. Perhaps another reason why God chose that word to write on the wall, to indicate the regime change that's about to happen. Out with the Babylonians, in with the Persians. And therein, of course, a confirmation of a part of that prophecy from chapter 2 from a few weeks ago 
where we saw that the head was going to be replaced with shoulders of slightly less precious metal, and one empire would succeed the next. And so God's plan is working itself out in so many different ways, on so many different levels, as we read through this book of Daniel. Belshazzar showed no repentance whatsoever on hearing this prophecy, this terrible prophecy. He went ahead, of course, with his extravagant reward, made Daniel the third in the country. He was proclaimed the third highest ruler, gold chain put around his neck, purple cloak put on him. And, of course, his tenure lasted very, very short time. Probably the, the briefest tenure of any chancellor of the exchequer of any sovereign state in history, because that very night, verse 30, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. The Greek historian Herodotus writes that uh, a secret attack happens at this point in history in 539 BC, and that the Persians actually sneaked into Babylon using the sewer system. They diverted the river Euphrates to uh, flow elsewhere, and they crept in through the muck of the sewer system and came up from underneath the Babylonians, thereby uh, getting round the enormous ancient walls of that greatest of all cities, 200,000 people who lived there, and took it um, suddenly by night, uh, by a surprise sneak attack. So probably, amazingly, even as these words are written on the wall, many, many took a parson, even as Daniel is interpreting them to King Belshazzar, at that very moment, can you imagine the Persians are creeping in under the sewers of Babylon and preparing to rise up into the city and take it from the Babylonians and to kill its regent, Belshazzar. Quite remarkable. And Darius the Mede, verse 31, took over the kingdom at the age of 62. A similar arrangement with Darius. Some historians uh, in the past said again, Darius, who is this Darius? We have never read of him in the historical accounts. It was Cyrus, Cyrus the Great, who was the ruler of Persia. But again, as was with many of these ancient kingdoms, Cyrus had a co-ruler, a co-regent, Darius, who took the kingdom. And that system of co-regents, of course, continued throughout the ancient world with some rather disastrous effects, particularly for the Romans, uh, with their co-emperors who often decided to fight each other rather than actually rule the Roman Empire. And Darius takes over, fulfilling more than one prophecy within the book of Daniel. And uh, Belshazzar's mistake in all of this was to forget the lesson of chapter 4, the the lesson of Nebuchadnezzar, which had been repeated throughout this book, that God rules, the Most High rules, and he alone can raise up and depose kings. The power went to Belshazzar's head, and he forgot the true God and made up gods of his own. There's a lesson there for us. Uh, We can lift verse 23, perhaps, to honour the God who holds in his hands our life. We went from reading about an unrighteous feast at the 9.30 service to observing a righteous feast, and we had the Lord's Supper at the end of the service, which was a rather nice turnaround. But more, as with Belshazzar, more than what we do, it's what that reflects on our hearts that really matters. And what God is weighing constantly, not just for Belshazzar, but for all of us, what he is weighing is our hearts. Will they be hearts that honour or dishonour the Lord Jesus, the Lord Most High. There's a lesson there for us, a cautionary lesson, but also perhaps even more so actually in this text, a lesson for those outside God's people. I mentioned earlier that this whole section of Daniel is written in Aramaic, uniquely for the Old Testament, most of which is written in ancient Hebrew. 
Aramaic was the language of administration, the language uh, which was a lingua franca across the ancient world at this time that you'd write official documents in. And so there's a sense in which this first half of Daniel is written for the world, not just for the Jewish people, those who would look after the scriptures for generations and centuries, but a part of scripture that God gave for the world quite uniquely within the canon of the Old Testament. And so the lessons here of this uh, first part of Daniel, of God ruling the nations, him being in charge, is particularly a lesson as well for those outside of the church. Any of us invited to preach to big public events would do well, perhaps, to pick from the opening chapters of Daniel. It'll certainly be on my mind when I'm, if I'm ever invited to such an event. The lesson is, of course, honour God. Don't profane his sanctuary. We have no temple cups on earth today. I wasn't able to bring a, a temple cup to show everybody. Um, I had to settle with a Dartington crystal cup to be my visual aid at the 9.30 service. Uh, of course, our sacred vessels, our temple, our high priest, they're all in heaven, uh, safely out of the reach of kings like Belshazzar. But there are still sacred things on earth, particularly the name of God. And how much the name of God gets dishonoured and profaned by the world. We can look around and we can see mockery of God everywhere sometimes and how it can drain us. Another means perhaps is you might have been following yesterday the or two days ago rather the assisted dying debate in the house of lords um, i actually had quite a delightful little correspondence with lord harry's of pendergraph who was the bishop of oxford when i was confirmed he confirmed me i mentioned that to him and asked him how he was going to be voting and speaking in the debate and i was delighted to hear that he was going to be speaking against the assisted dying debate but it was amazing to see the secular media and all sorts of people lining up uh, to advocate for introducing a cult of death and introducing a system whereby the nation will approve of and license doctors to kill people uh, rather than to preserve and protect life as their Hippocratic Oath is designed for. Sometimes when we look around and we see in our society today this sort of mockery of God going on everywhere. And it feels like Belshazzar's feast. It feels like that moment before the writing on the wall appears when God is mocked and the things that he has created are destroyed and held in derision. The lesson for the world is verse 23 again. Honour the God who holds in his hands your life, who alone raises up and deposes kings. At any moment that writing on the wall could appear at any moment could be regime change. And the Persians, at this very moment for our society, could be rising up from the sewers to take power. And the glory of the moment may pass. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for preserving this account in the book of Daniel. May we take to heart the lesson of your sovereignty. And may that be a lesson for all those around us as well, that you alone reign, that you alone raise up and depose, and to you alone belongs honour now and forever. Amen.
Well, we're going to uh, close with a hymn of praise or an aspiration to praise. The Bible says that uh, our God is enthroned on the praises of his people, and that zeroes down on each individual heart. And I want to encourage you, therefore, to make this prayer the prayer and longing of your heart. Oh, for a heart to praise my God. Let's uh, sing together our closing hymn. Take a seat. I'm going to invite us to pray this final prayer together. I know it says there's a, a part for the leader, and we just join him with our men. Seeing as we have it available to us, uh, I think on the screen and on the sheet, let's say these words together. Remembering that uh, call to honor the God who holds in his hand our life and all our ways. That will be true for us. Wherever we go, whatever we do this coming week. So let's uh, pray this prayer with that in mind together. May the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip us with everything good for doing his will, and may he work in us what is pleasing to him, 
through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.